Over the past three weeks, we've been addressing what we've labeled apathy uh, that kind of impacts all of our life, kind of wreaks havoc uh, in our own life, certainly in the world around us. And as we look at that, also how much damage it can do to our faith. And each week, we've just tried to look at some of the causes, but also try to offer some practical ways to address apathy that you might find kind of swelling up in your own heart. The first week, we looked at a prayer that Paul prayed that encourages us to grow in our love for God more and more, to uh, ask God to fill us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, that our lives would be pure and blameless, but also that we'd have wisdom to discern like the world around us and especially the relationships we have with each other, that that would move us from just kind of, eh, who cares, to like being a little bit more uh, deliberate in our faith. And we talked about it requiring work, uh, not work to be saved, but actually work that we, because we're saved, the work of sanctification, the work of becoming like Jesus. It takes time, it takes effort and energy, and that's all worth it, Paul says. Like when we live that way, Paul describes us like shining like stars, and that's a powerful picture to think about. I'd like to be like that instead of just kind of, meh. And then uh, we looked last week at the example of Paul. Paul says, don't be complacent. Don't just be stagnant, but keep yearning, keep growing. Press on toward the prize, he says. And he says what that prize is. That prize is Jesus himself. A prize that is way more worth anything that we would ever amass or accomplish here on this earth face of the earth. And so Paul says, strain for that, reach for that, work toward that. Don't become just kind of stagnant and yeah, right? And so um, we certainly haven't exhausted all the sources of apathy or even provided all the solutions that are available, but we've tried each week just to kind of identify some of those, but also offer some practical solutions. And so today, kind of the last week of this series, we wanted to address something that probably has it's nipping at our heels for everybody in this room. It's something that we probably could all identify as something that might leave us just like meh or even worse. Today we want to talk about overcoming apathy that might stem from the hurt we have experienced at church. Whether we like to admit it or even acknowledge it, probably all of us in some way would identify a time where we've been disappointed, maybe we've been frustrated, or even feel offended or hurt by people who call themselves followers of Jesus. I want to be very clear from the front that we're talking about relational hurt today. There are things that people who represent God have done that are illegal and victimizing like sexual abuse as an example, and there's a whole nother way that we need to approach those. But today I want to talk frankly uh, about the hurt that you and I have experienced relationally and, and the damage that that can do to our own faith journey and certainly the damage it can do to the witness around us in the world. And I want us to just kind of approach this by looking at um, our story. I'm gonna take a few moments just to share a little bit about my own personal story. I'm actually gonna talk a little bit about the story of this congregation and maybe as you listen, what I'd encourage you to do is think a little bit about your own story. Here's the reality, we all can acknowledge that the church is made up of imperfect people like you and like me, right? But that does not dismiss or erase the pain that can happen and none of us seems to be immune, including myself. 
Many of you know that I grew up in a preacher's home. I'm a PK is what they call that. And um, my dad started working at a local church even before he and my mom met or were married. And so as a preacher's kid, I got a front row seat to the really great and awesome things that a community of faith brings to our life. And I also got a front row seat to see some of the awful things that can happen amongst those who call themselves the bride of Christ. Now, as a preacher's kid, uh, early in life, I wasn't really aware of the dysfunction and even the politics that are involved sometimes in church. My dad did a great job of just being optimistic and positive and also protective of us as a family, even when things were rough for him or he was having to navigate some really challenging circumstances. It was only a few weeks into him becoming the pastor at the church I grew up at that um, he went to lunch with one of the leaders of that church. And the leader said, hey, it was really good having lunch with you today. He said, in fact, the guy that was before you, he, he and I had lunch every week. And, you know, because of that, things went really good for him. He stayed here a long time. And my dad just quickly responded, you know, it's a good thing that we still have some moving boxes in the garage because I won't be coming to your church or to your house every week to kind of get the orders for the week. 18 years, almost into the very day, that man was one of the largest adversaries in my dad's life. He made my dad's life miserable. What made it harder for me, his son was one of my best friends. It was a weird dynamic that happened early in life. And fast forward to when I was about 14 years old, I got to go to one of the first congregational meetings that I remember. Those are the ones we all try to avoid, right? And uh, I wish I would have avoided this one. I sat there that night listening to people that I respected, but people who called themselves followers of Jesus say all kinds of awful, hateful things to my hero, my dad. They made false accusations about him that I knew were not true. And they made all kinds of judgments about the decisions or the way he carried out his professional life. And I remember sitting there just feeling so broken and, and, and just disgusted. And because the congregational meeting was an open mic event, I felt like there came a point where I'd had enough. And so I stepped up to share a few things that I was thinking in that moment. I realized I was not the most objective person in the room that day. But also, I was way more informed than pretty much anybody else, right? Because I knew that guy they were talking about, not just from behind the pulpit, I, I sat at the kitchen table with him. I watched he and his wife, my parents, like stretch a very meager salary to feed four kids and, and or feed six people and clothe four kids. I, I was the one whose ball game got missed when somebody died at the church and my dad needed to be there to care for their family. Or uh, I was the one who uh, waited at school for uh, my dad to pick me up after being somewhere with uh, a church event or an activity. And I guess I just sit there trying to recognize and reconcile in my mind how these people who say they love God could be so hateful, right? And so I don't remember a lot what I said that night, but I do remember saying this. I said, you know, I've sat here listening to you tonight crucify a man who loves God more than I probably can ever think about loving God. And he also loves all of you more than you'll ever know. And what's the hardest thing for me to think about tonight is that I feel like God's calling me to work at a local church, and I sure hope I never work at a church made up of people like you. And I walked out the door and went and hid in my parents' car. That's where I went. Uh, I wasn't sure how that was going to go over with my dad, 
Um, so I just hid in my parents. I remember crouching down in the floorboard of the back seat. And I could hear my parents and other friends of theirs calling my name looking for me. And I didn't ever uh, show up. And then the front door car door opened. And a man named Steve stepped in and got behind the wheel. And he said, Phil, I, I know you're in here. And I just want you to know I'm sorry. I'm sorry you had to sit through that tonight. He also said, I know your dad is really proud of you. And I'll tell him that you're safe. And um, he got out of the car. You know, I'll stand here today and say that I don't have any regrets for anything I said that night. Nor do I have a regret of saying yes to God's call on my life to, to follow in my dad's footsteps and to serve at a local church. I would be remiss if I didn't say that I've had the privilege and honor to serve next to and serve some very awesome people that my life has been influenced in so many powerful ways. And I am eternally grateful for that. But I also would say it's not also been easy for me. Uh, when I graduated from college, I accepted the role of high school pastor at a church here in Evansville, Indiana. The church was known as Cullen Avenue Christian Church. And probably many of you might recognize that that is the name of this congregation when it was located over behind Harrison High School at the corner of Bellmead and Cullen Avenue. And I came roaring out of college with a lot of energy and youthfulness and optimism. And we were so excited to join the staff. Some of my friends from college were actually from this church or actually were already serving at this church. And that meant a lot to us. In fact, the senior pastor at that time was my uncle by marriage. My wife, Christy, adored her uncle and aunt. And she spent a lot of time with them growing up. And when we moved here, we thought, this is going to be awesome. Here's some people that she loves that we're going to get to do life with, but also ministry with. And her uncle was a very talented communicator and leader. And at that time, this congregation, it was exploding with growth. I mean, we went from two services to five services and felt God leading us to relocate. And so... That was building this campus here in Newburgh. And so on Halloween night, 1998, who would have thought that that would be a great night to have a first service in a brand new church, but it was us. So we opened this facility on that night. It was an awesome moment. And within the next week, that senior pastor invited all of us other pastors into his office and said he wanted to let us know that he and his wife were divorcing that he was going to continue leading the congregation and we needed to decide if we could follow a pastor who was divorced and we should let him know by the end of the week. He said, we might need some time to think about it and that was an understatement for sure. Well, by the end of that week, our elders here at Crossroads had stepped in and asked that pastor to take a six-month sabbatical so that he could focus primarily on one thing and that was the restoration of he and his wife. That was their number one priority. And after that six-month period was over, he actually returned to leadership and, and to the pulpit and then resigned about two and a half short months thereafter. I mean, this is all within the first year of opening this facility. And so it was a brand new facility, but it was millions of dollars in debt. And it was also uh, the presence of a group of people who really didn't feel like that person had got a a fair shake, and, and the elders had mistreated him. And so he and a group of those people exited this congregation and went just down the road and started meeting for worship and Bible study, and a new congregation was born. But God wasn't done with Crossroads Christian Church. You know, people stepped in to lead and to serve and to give, and there was healing that occurred. 
And at the same time, there were questions and there were hurts and there were also some casualties. At the end of 2002, I actually accepted a different ministry assignment and relocated my family uh, and I to Louisville, Kentucky, where I took on the leadership of a youth ministry there. Christy and I, to this day, will say we were extremely confident that that was what God was asking us to do. And it was difficult to leave a place that we loved and the friends that we had. It was where we had had two of our three children. There are a lot of emotional attachments here. But we felt like we were answering God's call. And then, I mean, we really began to wonder if we had made the biggest mistake of our life. Before my first day of work, I actually went over to meet the team I was going to have the privilege of leading. And during that meeting, two of my new teammates stood up and began arguing almost to the point of punching each other. And I drove back to Evansville thinking, God, I sure hope you know what you're doing. And he did. He knew exactly what he was doing. But I'll say that was probably the hardest period of my professional life to this point. It came with so much self-doubt and criticism and insecurity. The culture from my perspective in that place was very, very um, unhealthy. It was very performance-based. There was not a real seriousness about discipleship and not a lot of authenticity. And I felt very ostracized by, by people around me. I was mischaracterized by the people who led me. I was um, positioned around for people who wanted my responsibilities or, or my level of influence. And it hurt. I'll just say that it was just a really bad fit from the very beginning. And I had the opportunity to find a new place to support my family just about three and a half years after moving there. But God wasn't done with Phil Heller yet. I'm grateful that God relocated me and my family to Noblesville, Indiana, just north of Indianapolis. And there, I could tell you, I really didn't realize the amount of healing that my heart needed when I arrived there. But I'm grateful that God entrusted me to a group of people who were nowhere perfect, but were very welcoming and affirming and encouraging. And God just began to renew my love for him, my, my zest for life, and, and also renew this sense of calling and purpose that had, man, just felt beaten down as I was m making that move. We really enjoyed our time in Noblesville. And like I said, it wasn't a perfect place. It had its own warts and dysfunction and challenges and there were difficulties and, uh, you know, but God was just really gracious to us in that period of time. I, the identical same time, Crossroads just continued to limp along for a few years. There were some changes in leadership and try to finding their place again and, and, and purpose again. And it was during that season that the leadership of Crossroads hired a, a person who had just retired as a Bible college president in the Midwest. And that person became the senior pastor here at Crossroads. And over those 10 years as he served this congregation, God did some amazing things. It was a great time of growth, growth financially, growth of numerically. It was during that period of time that in some ways Crossroads got, got put on the map. I mean, not just locally, but also nationally, even internationally. Crossroads became known as a place for worship and music, for um, local outreach, even global outreach and impact. It was a really blessed season of ministry. And as the 10th year kind of came around for that leader, he had made a commitment to retire again at that 10-year mark. And it was during that period of time that the leadership appointed a new leader to begin leading as the lead pastor at Crossroads here at time. 
upon taking over as the lead pastor, there were some significant changes that happened. A new philosophy of ministry, a new strategy to begin. And with that came some tension between that leadership and also the congregation and the leadership around them. And there were people who got their feelings hurt. There was hard decisions that were made. And at the exact same time, a long-tenured staff member here at Crossroads was tragically killed along with two of his close family members. And you dump that on top of the hurt and pain that was already being felt, and things were just getting really troubled. As the elders began to just recognize an increasing amount of deficiency in leadership and, and even in integrity, they made a really difficult decision to remove that leader and to ask him to exit staff. There was a group of people who felt really uncomfortable and disappointed by that, and there was a pretty big disruptive uh, worship gathering. Uh, it meant to answer questions, but it was combative and volatile to the point where that person and, and a handful of other staff members, along with a, a large number of people, decided they were going to exit Crossroads. And they began meeting weekly for Bible study and worship, and a new congregation was born. But God wasn't done with Crossroads Christian Church. The elders had to navigate some very turbulent times. I think they did so with integrity and compassion and resolve. They chose not to publicly malign those who uh, they had disagreed with. They even chose not to defend themselves, even though they were at times wrongly criticized and highly accused of things. But people stepped up to lead, to give, to serve, and healing occurred. And yes, there are still some questions, there are still some hurts, and there have definitely been some casualties along the way. But God called a new leader to lead here at Crossroads as the lead pastor, and my family and I relocated back to Evansville. And I am so glad that we did. I'll be honest, it was really difficult to leave a place. Oh, thank you. I'll be honest, it was really difficult for us to leave a place that we had felt so loved and, and so blessed in a ministry setting. Our family was well-established there. We had lots of friends and lots, just enjoyed that community. But if you ask my wife this morning or I, we would continue to say that even almost three and a half, four years later, that the confirmation that God provided for us, that this is what he was doing, they're, they're just unquestionable, Right? I'll be honest, it wasn't the most attractive professional move, right? I mean, like, hey, wouldn't you like to inherit all this, uh, you know, carnage and dysfunction? And like, congratulations, you get to lead that, right? So, But also, who would have known nine months after moving here that we'd get to navigate not just that, but also a worldwide pandemic? I slept through that class when I had it in college, like navigating worldwide pandemics, right? And you know, as odd as that is, it also came with some hurt and disappointment and frustration. Gotta wear a mask. No, they're not wearing masks. We're meeting in person. No, we can't meet in person. And just the awkwardness and difference of opinion, some stronger than others, and just that just kind of like festered, right? And so here we find ourselves, right? I mean, I've just shared a little bit of my story. I shared a little bit of the story of this congregation, primarily all focused on the hurt that has occurred. But like I said, you have a story too. I'm sure if you got the chance, if I handed the mic to every one of us here today, one by one, you could probably talk about a time where you felt disappointed, frustrated, probably even wounded or hurt by 
the bride of Christ, the, the people of God. The people who we would all say, like, aren't supposed to act that way. That shouldn't happen. This isn't the way that the church is supposed to function, right? The gates of hell are not supposed to prevail against it. And so why can't we all just get along, right? And for many of us, that, that has been more or less the story, right? You know, I used to think that life was separated into two categories, either really good or really bad. And, and the two did really mix. We just lived in one extreme or the other. But as I mature, I recognize I've not arrived there. I'm in the process of maturing, right? As I look back on life and even experience right here in the present, I realize that life is actually a mixture of both of those, good and bad, like highs and lows, beauty and ashes. One thing I'm completely confident that they both exist together and God is present in all of it. And he's also working. Even when we can't see, he's still working, right? You know, when bad things happen, when we get hurt, especially by those who call themselves followers of Jesus, we can have a strong reaction to that, right? I mean, we can look at things that happen around us and we can look at church splits and we can look at um, moral failures. We can certainly look at the abuse that occurs. And it can, we can get a little disenfranchised about this bride of Christ, right? And if you add to that disappointment that you might feel, maybe your preference isn't met, or maybe your deeply held convictions are challenged, maybe you disagree with decisions, or maybe there's just tension between you and other believers, it can all make us feel a little meh about the church and really reluctant to engage. The statistics actually don't lie. There's a lot of study about this. A recent study called the Unchurched Report by the Billy Graham Institute, as well as Lifeway Research, it reveals that over a third of people who used to be engaged in church but no longer want anything to do with the church claim the reason is they've just lost all trust in God and his people and the local church. And that was before the pandemic gave us a great exit to just kind of sit in our PJs and church surf and disengage all the more. You know, I'm in, uh, I find some weird comfort when I read through scripture and I recognize that church dysfunction is really not a modern day phenomenon. In fact, it's been happening ever since the first two people of God were created. When Adam and Eve were in the garden, sin allowed them to make some really poor choices. And what they do, they start blaming each other and it just unraveled from there, right? I'm sure if you're reading through the Bible with us already, you've read some things in Genesis and Exodus that makes you scratch your head and go like, this is in the Bible? I mean, like, doesn't it kind of stump you a little bit? I just made a list. Like, Abraham and Lot had a falling out. Jacob and Esau had a feud. Joseph's brothers betrayed him. Moses was doubted and criticized by his own sister and brother. The rest of God's people really wanted nothing to do with him. Uh, the prophets, when you get to read them, you'll just be like strangely uh, reacting to like, how did they feel about God's people? And they had a really, really kind of vindictive spirit almost like, you people are clueless, you know, and they're kind of mad at God for uh, forcing them or, or leading them or calling them to lead God's people. That's just the Old Testament, right? Jump to the New Testament and you see like the disciples fighting over who's the greatest, you see one of the disciples just jumping off the wagon all together, right? You see, uh, you know, the, the clash in the early church where some widows were getting more food than the other widows and the people were fighting about that. And then you have Peter and Paul disagreeing about the gospel and how food should be eaten and who to hang out with like Jews or Jews and Gentiles. 
Paul and Barnabas like, decided to part ways because one of them thought John Mark should go with and the other one didn't. Then you have the whole Corinthian church. There's just a hot mess, right? Just wait till you read about them. You know, even the church that Paul loved so much, this Philippian church we've been reading about all this month, I mean, they had their issues. And, and that's what I want to kind of look out for the rest of our time today. Like, how did Paul acknowledge or identify with the issue? And more importantly, what can we learn about how to respond to and, and help navigate this time when the church might have hurt us? So if you want to follow along, Philippians chapter 4, let me just read what Paul begins to say in verse 1. He says this. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you who I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Those are some really beautiful words about their relationship. He says this, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Verse 2, he says this, I plead with you, Judea, and I plead with you, Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, maybe Timothy or Luke or maybe Epaphroditus, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. Paul begins this section with a charge to the people of God to stand firm in the Lord in this way. I think this is like a, um, a bridge verse between what he's been writing about in chapter 3, like living as citizens of heaven, and what he's getting ready to talk about, these instructions to practically live that out that he's going to write about in chapter 4. We don't know too much about these two women, Judea and Syntyche, but they, we do know that they've been faithful laborers with Paul. They've been contending for the gospel. They've been right there by his side. Paul met them in Philippi, and what we know about the Philippian churches, it was actually started by women. A lady named Lydia was, was one of the key leaders that helped birth that church along with Paul. And these women may have been there from the very beginning, but what we know right now is that they cannot get along. They're at each other. And Paul says, stop. I made a mistake one time. My wife and my oldest daughter were having a disagreement. And I thought the kind thing to do was to be the leader of the home and step in, right? And so I said, girls. And then all the heat came to me from one source, my wife. Don't you ever put me in the same sentence with your daughter and call me a girl. And she was right, right? Paul says to these women, stop. Stop arguing. Get together. He says, have the same mind. That does not mean think alike. That's not possible probably. But what he does mean is have the same mind, be of one spirit. And what he's telling not just women, but all of us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to have the same intent, purpose. We have to have the same commitment to the things that really matter. The mind of Christ. And it's a non-negotiable. One heart and in one purpose. It's imperative for those who call themselves the family of God. Members of a church, those whose names are written in the book of life, Paul says. Get it together, people. That's my paraphrase. The rest of the imperatives that Paul gives in chapter 4, I think can be and should be viewed in the context of nurturing unity and also navigating its absence. And so what I'd like to do is just kind of walk through the rest of a couple of these things that Paul says and maybe answer some of the question, like how do we respond when we get hurt by the church? And the very first thing that Paul says is have joy. <laughs> Maybe you weren't expecting that, right? Listen to what he says in Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 
If you've read through the book of Philippians, you can know that Paul is constantly talking about joy. In fact, most Philippian preaching series are about joy and having joy. In this moment, he's not suggesting it. He's commanding it. He's saying, be joyful. Life will have its ups and downs, my friends. It'll have twists and turns. It'll have good, bad, and ugly. And he didn't say, don't worry, be happy. He says, be joyful. Joyful is a state that is not circumstantial. I think it's eternal. Joy is something you can't muster up. Joy is something that you receive. It's a gift from the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And you're going to need it all throughout life. Especially when things get crazy. Maybe when things don't go your way. Maybe when you've been hurt by those that you trusted the most. And you're left wondering, what just happened? I want you to know that when the imperfect people of God disappoint you. Or when they cause you pain. Your source of joy is not them. It's their perfect leader, Jesus. That's where our joy comes from. And Paul says, if you're going through just some struggle, if, if you're not getting along as the body of Christ, choose joy first. Be joyful. And next he says, be gentle. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Again, this is another command, not a suggestion. Paul says, don't lead with aggression or vindication, power, indignation, revenge, or, or, or anything. Be gentle. That doesn't come naturally when we've been offended or hurt. That's why it's a promised gift, again, from the Holy Spirit. It's supernatural. It comes from God when we do not feel like being gentle, but we have a whole other set of options that are quick on our mind. Paul says, be gentle like Jesus. And he says, our motivation is because the Lord is near. Now, what does he mean by that? It could mean that Jesus is ever present. He's right there when you say those hateful words to the person that you're worshiping next to. He's there when you think those thoughts. He knows both. And so you should be conscious as well as responsive to the fact that Jesus is right next to you. He knows it all. And so clean it up so it glorifies him. It could also mean that Jesus is coming back soon. We don't know when. It could be today, but we do know that we will be held accountable for our thoughts, our motives, our actions, the way we treat each other. Jesus is going to hold us accountable to that. Yes, all of our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. Thank God. But that doesn't dismiss the poor choices that we have made. There's accountability, and we have to be mindful of that as we live here with each other. Both of those are good reasons to live in love like Jesus, to be gentle as our first response. Paul says, have joy, be gentle. And he also says, pray. Look what he says in verse 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, it's easy to get really worked up really fast. Our first reaction when things are crazy or hurtful is to emote. It's to worry. It's to imagine the worst. It's to text or call a friend and share about it. It's to seek counsel or take revenge. Some of those responses are much better than others, right? But Paul says our first response should be joyful, gentle, and prayerful all happening at the same time. He says, don't be anxious. 
He says, don't worry. Don't fixate on the circumstances. Don't fixate on the offense or the offenders. But first pray about everything and in every situation, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Paul says, when you pray, ask God to do something. Seek his work. Don't try to figure it out on your own first. Petitions are asking God to move and do something that only he can He also says, pray with thanksgiving. Thank God for his character. Thank God for his ability to do what none of us can. Thank him for what he has done, what he is doing, and thank him for what he will do. The outcome promise might not be what you ask for. It might be exactly what you need. Ever get one of those prayers answered? I prayed for this and he gave me what I needed instead. In this moment, Paul says, you will receive the peace of God. And again, it's a gift from God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's a peace that transcends all understanding. It might not make sense to you. It might not be what you rationally thought would happen or should happen, but it's what needs to happen. The peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds. It will protect us from being discouraged, being hopeless, and certainly becoming apathetic. Paul says, Have joy, be patient, be gentle, pray. He also says, focus on good things. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Paul says, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. You know, the old adage is true. Garbage in, garbage out. And it's so easy to fixate our mind on things that are not positive. We immediately think of all the good. No, we always think about the bad. If you look at this list that Paul gives you, you'll see the things that should consume your mind. When you get disappointed or when you get hurt, let your mind rush to all the good things that Paul points out. This doesn't dismiss the hurt, nor does it exonerate the offender. It just helps us have peace in the midst of the storm. Peace that will help us not quit or give up or stop caring. I think those are all good recipes for overcoming apathy. Setting our mind on these things, the things of God, they will help us in putting them into practice. The things we think about often become our attitude, and they often lead to our behavior. That's why they're so important. And Paul says again, you can follow my example. We have to remember where Paul's writing these words from. Prison. Why is he in prison? Because the people of God falsely accused him of teaching heresy. He was teaching about the way, the the truth of Jesus. And they said, that's an abomination of God. You should be killed for that. And they actually arrested him. And they were on the way to put him to death for preaching about Jesus. In the midst of that, Paul's saying, hey, Stand firm, have joy, pray, be gentle, focus on the good things. He's not describing some Pollyanna like optimism that like dismisses what's happening around him. It's much deeper than that. And it comes from God himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I kind of just scratched my head like, how could Paul behave that way? What would give him that awesome perspective on life when it seems to really, really stinky right now? I think that Paul never forgot what he was saved from. 
You know Paul's story, right? Before preacher, he was persecutor. He was a person of God hurting the people of God. He realized that he had been forgiven by God for persecuting the people of God. And because he had been forgiven of doing that, he found himself able to forgive the people of God who were hurting him. And that's a powerful example for us to follow, friends. Here's the reality. Yes, we probably will get hurt at church. Maybe the place that we think is the safest. There's the potential because of being imperfect people for, for us to get our feelings hurt, for us to get sideways with each other, for us to be pain, uh, cause the pain. How do we respond to that? Well, one of the maybe more powerful ways to respond is to remember that you've probably also been the one who has hurt someone or caused pain, even in your best intentions. Paul thought he was doing something that honored God by killing those who said they followed Jesus. So my friends, I would just encourage all of us to realize that we've been hurt and we've probably hurt others. And God's forgiveness is big enough for us to receive the forgiveness that we need for hurting others and to help us find forgiveness for those who have hurt us. You know, I had a goal last year that I didn't talk too much about in public. Uh, it was a goal I wrote for myself here uh, as my responsibilities. And the goal was this. I was going to make peace with three people that I knew our relationship was in a state of conflict or just something was there. And I did pretty good with two of them. <laughs> in fact, pretty early in the year, I reached out personally to both of them and I said some things that I felt like I needed to own in our relationship and they said some things they needed to own in, their rela in our relationship and we actually spent more time together the rest of the year. But then there was the third name. And I deliberately procrastinated all year not reaching out to that third name. Why? Because I didn't want to. It was more fun to cheer against that person's favorite team when I saw them on TV. It was more fun to drive by where I knew that person used to live and think those thoughts. They were thoughts that came quickly because I remember the hurt, the hurt from 17 years ago when I watched that person say things that weren't true about me or to position himself around me so he could get more opportunity for influence. I watched him ostracize everybody that I was supposed to be leading so I would be isolated by myself. And that hurt. If you know something about me, I like to celebrate birthdays. Pretty regularly, I call people on their birthdays. And God has this really crazy sense of humor. On December the 28th, three days before the end of the year, guess whose birthday it was? Yeah, my old friend from 17 years ago. For the past 17 years, with good sincerity in my heart, I've sent a happy birthday message to so-and-so. And every year I've wished that person a great day and tried to celebrate the day they were born, even though the day they hurt me felt like just yesterday. And it was well past the time for me to turn in how I did on my goals. I had already reported, hey, it was two for three. That makes a lot of money in the major leagues, you know, but it didn't really land the goal that I had written for myself. And so the birthday message on the 28th of December was different this year. I still included... Um, Thank God for your birth, and we celebrate that. But then I said, we need to talk. For the past 17 years, since things ended between us in Louisville, I've always just felt very hurt by some of your actions. 
I never said anything to you because it was just easier to think bad thoughts about you than to do the hard work of seeking reconciliation between us. But that day is done. I can't continue to live that way. And I don't know if you're open to this, but I would just ask, could we talk by the phone? There's a quick response back. And he said, thanks for the birthday message. Thanks for all the messages over the years. And yes, we need to talk. And so we did. We had about a 30-minute conversation on the phone. For him to take ownership for the things he did to hurt me, man, that brought so much freedom in so many ways. And there was also a time where I took ownership for the things I had done and asked his forgiveness. Please, I hope that this whole spiel today hasn't felt like one big pity party for Phil Heller and some victim card. That is nowhere in my heart. I know for a fact that I've been hurt by people who call themselves followers of Jesus, and they truly are sincerely followers of Jesus. But I also am very mindful that there's been people I've hurt. There's been things I've done to disappoint you or who knows who else. And if you are one of those people here today that I've disappointed or hurt, I just want to say to you publicly, I own that and I'm sorry for that. And if you and I need to talk privately or in person, I just open myself up to that because that's what it would look like for us, you and me, to live out what Paul's asking us to do. Here's my challenge. Don't wait till December of this year to make peace with that person who's hurt you or the person that you know you've hurt. You feel it every time you interact with them because you just know that there's this unsettled something between you. Be the bigger person or the first person to just say, hey, can we talk? Deal with it. Let's learn to express the forgiveness that we have so generously received from God. Here's what we wanted to do just to close today. We really didn't want to manipulate anything. We just wanted to kind of lay it out there. God, our story, our story as a congregation, the story of your church has been littered with pain from hurt. And I'm just done with that. There's no way we can learn to abide if we haven't moved past this hurt, kind of vengeful, like I'm gonna hold this grudge place in our heart. It's not possible. So no more on my watch. We're just gonna bury the hatchet today or at least start that process. And so here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. In just a few moments, uh, the band's just gonna play a song that I think really puts into words the my heart and I hope your heart as we think about how to respond to the hurt that we've caused as well as the hurt we've experienced. And I'm just gonna invite you to come up to these stairs. There's a lot of stairs we don't use for a lot of things, but today we're just gonna turn them into an altar of prayer. Not an altar to this church or to me, that's weird, but an altar to God. And maybe for the first time or maybe hopefully for the last time, you'll just lay down at this altar what's hurt you. And also, the hurt that you've caused. I would encourage you to do that with open hands that God would begin healing and moving in your heart in ways that only he can. You know, Jesus never wanted his church to be a place of hurt. Do you remember how he responded when he went to the temple that day and there were money changers taking advantage of people? He flipped over the tables. He whipped out a whip. He started driving out the animal and the businessmen. And he said this, my house is going to be a house of prayer for all people. That's what we want to happen today, for this to be a place of prayer for all people. However you need to respond, we're trusting that God's Spirit will lead you. 
So I invite you, whether you come up front to pray by yourself, if you want to pray with someone, right over by the baptistry, there'll be some members of our care team to pray with you if you would like that. Or you can stay right where you're seated. But I hope all of us will listen to the words of this song and actually begin to make it our prayer that um, we'd be a, a group of people that live differently. We would live and love a lot like Jesus. That would force us to work through the times where it just doesn't feel real bushy-gushy, where we've been hurt, and let God bring healing that only he can. So I invite you to do that with us right now as we pray.